Well, good morning. Glad to see all five of you here today. <clears throat> any chance that any Aggies in the room were going to come today faded at the uh, fourth overtime last night? <clears throat> you can whoop if you watch the game. It's okay. Oh, that's why there's no one. Yeah, okay, so there you go. Um, it's such an encouragement, church, to, to, hear, um, to hear what God is doing through, through Neil and Sarah. I mean, when you, when you come to the book of Acts, like we're doing in the series right now, you see these amazing things that God is doing. And it just feels so foreign to what our experience of Jesus is here in the United States. But that doesn't mean that God isn't still doing this same kind of stuff around the world. In fact, the stories that, that you um, have heard this morning from Neil and Sarah that, that you could hear if you went and asked them are stories similar to what God is doing in India and, and China. And let it just be an encouragement to you this morning that the Holy Spirit who's working in Africa is the same Holy Spirit who lives inside of you who's able to use you and work inside of you to do things in Magnolia and the woodlands. You may not see hundreds of people come to faith here in Magnolia, but you can see the miracle of God taking a dead heart and bringing it back to life by conversations you have with your neighbors or your coworkers or people in your family. And that in and of itself should be an encouragement to us that we can still rely on and, and trust the same Holy Spirit to work uh, in us. And so uh, this morning, um, we are going to see how God continues to work um, through men and women like you and me, men and women like Neil and Sarah, to reach those who don't know Jesus as we dig into Acts 8 this morning. Um, if you want to go ahead and open that up there, it's going to be on page 916 in the Bible in your row. If you don't have a Bible at home that you enjoy reading, um, or if you don't have a Bible at all, you're welcome to take that home today um, as our gift. And uh, for those of you that are visiting with us today, either because you're in town uh, visiting family for the holidays or looking for a church home in the area, let me just say welcome. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, really excited that you have chosen to be here uh, with us today. So as we're teaching through the book of Acts, um, one of the things we've seen over the last couple of weeks, as, as John, a couple of weeks ago, uh, shared with us from Acts 7, was that there was this growing tension that, that exists here in the early church between the chief priests and the elders of, of Israel and the disciples. And, and in Acts chapter 7, a couple of weeks ago, when John shared that passage with us, we, we see that that tension kind of boiled over finally when Stephen defended his faith and, and he accused the leaders of Israel of killing the Messiah. And so they take Stephen outside of the city and they stone him to death. And it's in the moment that that's happening that we see this man named Saul. And for someone to be named here in, in Acts 7 as one that people go and lay their cloaks at the feet of this man as they're stoning Stephen, it isn't just a, a casual thing where they go, I don't know, that looks like a cool guy. He's young, he's got a beard, he's got a nice robe. Let's go lay our cloaks at his feet. No, the reason that Saul is named is because he was likely not only participating in instigating the crowd and demanding that Stephen be stoned, but he was seen as a leader in this young community of, of Israel as one to whom people should look for direction. And so we see that Stephen dies and Saul is elevated as this person of influence, this person of power, this visible supporter of Stephen's death. And so last week we took a break from Acts and uh, Ralph shared with us from John 4 about Jesus going to the Samaritan woman. 
And what we saw in that was that God has a heart for the nations. God has a heart for people who don't know him and who are far from him. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to see those two elements come together in a really unique way. The element of, of this man named Saul and this persecution and this, this squashing of the message of Jesus and this message of God loving the nations and caring for people and specifically the people of Samaria. And so I don't want to, uh, I don't want to belabor that. I want to just jump in this morning and, and begin to see how God is going to weave those two things that we've seen over the last two weeks together as we begin in Acts chapter 8. So if you'll... Uh, Read with me either on the screen um, or just listen. If you don't understand why the publishers didn't go straight to Audible or ebook right away, you can use one of those methods. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you can use that as well. Um, we're going to start in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and read through verse 4. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, his execution being Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So let's stop there. So here at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, just to give you a little bit of a timeline, this is actually about a year after Christ's death and resurrection. And even though we saw back in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus went to his disciples and he said, hey, I'm calling you to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. One year into this mission, the church hasn't really left Jerusalem. So all of that begins to change here at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. This, this stoning of Stephen, his death, is the tipping point that we need to, to see for this growing, simmering frustration that, that the leaders of Israel have with the church to finally boil over into something more extreme. And so no sooner do we see here in the beginning of, of chapter 8 that Stephen had been executed for his faith than a great persecution broke out against the church and Saul is the one who's leading the way. And this is no light persecution. I know that we just kind of read four verses and boom, we're going to move on to the next thing. But, but you get the, the sense here as you read and you look at verse 3 that, that Saul is, is not just going around and interviewing people. Hey, are you part of the church? He's going on a witch hunt. House by house, finding men and women who have been associated with the church, have been associated with Jesus, and he's dragging them away from their families, dragging them away from their homes, committing them to prison with no hope, no answer for what might happen next. This word ravaging here, when it's used in Greek, it's not used anywhere else in the Bible. When it's used in Greek literature, it's, it's used of a wild boar tearing apart a garden. And for those of you who aren't gardeners, but parents, maybe a better analogy would be, have you ever given a piece of cake to a one-year-old? I mean, it's a bloodbath a blood of, of gluten and frosting, or almond flour if you're, you're crunchy. So, I mean, it's just irreparable, unmanageable damage. That is the sense in which Saul approached the church. He wasn't trying to stomp out something that he saw as a nuisance. He was trying to eradicate what he saw as blasphemy against God. And he would stop at nothing to see that that take place. And so today when you hear stories about persecution of the church in foreign countries like China and 
North Korea or countries in the Middle East or Africa, even, even some of the persecution that, that exists in places like where Neil and Sarah are, places where it's not uncommon for a, a church building to be burned to the ground or to be bulldozed, where it's not uncommon for Christians to be worshiping on Sunday morning and have someone walk in the back door and shoot and kill everybody inside the building where it's not uncommon for Bibles to be burned or for the church to have to meet in secret and in private out of fear that they will be thrown in prison with no answer for when they'll ever get out. That's the same kind of persecution that not only existed here in Acts 8, but exists today. And as a church in America, it's so hard for us to understand this. Because the the most persecution most of us ever feel is someone being uncomfortable with us being Christians or making a comment that hurts our feelings. But despite that, I think there's still something that we can learn from this this morning that's key for us. While we may not be a church who experiences persecution, we can pray for churches around the world who are experiencing persecution. We can be mindful of the fact that persecution is taking place around the world. And then we can be mindful for us that Jesus has not only said that in this world we'll have troubles, but that we should expect to suffer for our faith. So while it may not mark our lives now, we can bank on the fact that we are not promised comfort and safety and security as believers. But in spite of that, I think there's something else that's key for us to see this morning, which is true for them as it is for us today as well. I think what we need to understand from this this persecution that begins in the church is that God will sometimes allow uncomfortable and unfortunate things to happen to us to progress us forward in the plans he has. Sometimes God will use bad, difficult, frustrating, uncomfortable things in our lives to move us forward in the plans that he has for us. What do I mean by that? Church, the goal for the disciples was never to stay in Jerusalem. But we're one year in, and the gospel has not really spread out from Jerusalem. The goal was always to reach out to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Yet it wasn't until this persecution happened that the people really began to scatter, as we saw in verse 4, to preach the word. It took this difficult, this unsettling thing to happen in order to motivate the people of God to leave and fulfill in obedience the call that they had been given. And often that rings true for us. I don't know about you, but the times where my antenna are most alert to what God is doing is not when I'm comfortable and safe and secure, but when I feel like everything is falling apart around me. When life is difficult. When I don't know what to expect tomorrow. When I'm in my soul experiencing anguish and grief, those are times where I'm most attuned to what God is doing and saying, Lord, help me understand what's next. God doesn't have to use discomfort or persecution in order to motivate us to see what's going on. But, but in the vein of what Neil and Sarah asked this morning, what are the things that may be uncomfortable in your life right now that God is using to get your focus on him and to move you forward in the plans he has for you. Maybe God is using a job loss or an affair or broken trust in your marriage or a sick spouse or a sick kid or financial troubles to get your eyes off of your problems this morning and onto what he's doing. 
so that you would stop being so self-consumed for a minute and realize that God loves you and is with you and wants to walk through the difficulty with you so that when the difficulty is over, he might receive praise and your admiration and your devotion because he's worth it. It hasn't been lost on me as I was thinking about this this morning that God may be using Casey's departure from C3 and the discomfort that I know many of us feel and the questions that many of us have and the confusion that that's brought for many of us not to leave us in a place where we sit back and, and wonder what happened, why, what's next, but to get us to say, God, what do you have in store for us? You don't allow things to happen to leave us stuck where we are. You allow hard things and difficult things and good things and confusing things to happen to us so that we would look to you for direction and for hope and for guidance because you love your church. I mean, this, this church here in Acts 8, who were probably asking questions like, God, why are you doing this? Why is this happening to us? Why did you let my dad go? Why is, why is my mom being drugged off to prison? Am I going to get to go home again? The same God who loved that church and knew that church and cared for that church and knew what was in store for them, otherwise we wouldn't have the rest of this book, knows this church. He loves this church. He knows what's next for this church. And he's inviting both them here and us to trust him as he moves forward. And so this morning as we we move from this passage into the rest of Acts 8, what we're going to see is how the church responds. How do they respond to the difficulty that God brings? What happens as people walk in obedience moving forward? And that's what I want us to see this morning for us as well, is how then should we respond? The way the disciples responded to the persecution was to go out and spread the good news about Christ as we see in chapter 4. And we're going to see that as that happens, the gospel leaves Jerusalem and it goes out to Judea and Samaria. And, and the response to the gospel message that Jesus died for our sins and rose again is what we'll see today. We saw that, that Saul's response to it was to reject it and to fight it. But we're going to see here how people groups and two key individuals respond to the gospel. So if you will look back at verse 4 with me, we're going to see what immediately happens as the people are pushed from Jerusalem and respond to what God is doing. Look at me, look at uh, verse 4 with me. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so... There was much joy in that city. So what we see here in in verse 5 is that one of the ones who scattered out is Philip. If you remember back in Acts chapter 6, Philip is is one of the seven who was chosen to distribute food to the widows. And his first stop is the city of Samaria. So last week, Ralph shared with us... um, about Jesus going to the Samaritan woman, and, and he showed us what an incredibly big deal it was that, that um, the Jews would, would go and be associated with a, a woman of Samaria. What a big deal it is that Jesus would go and he would spend his time visiting with this woman at the well because there was so much disdain that the Jews 
had for the Samaritans. The Samaritans, if, if you remember, were these mixed-breed people who were part of the tribes of Israel that, that back when King Rehoboam took the throne, broke away from the other tribes of Israel and, and devoted themselves to false gods and to false idols. And they're the descendants of these, these people who rejected God, rejected the worship of God, and chose to follow false gods. They devoted themselves to things other than the worship of Yahweh. And so the Jews, being purists and knowing and holding fast to the law, saw these people as descendants of those who were unfaithful. Descendants of those who saw the truth about God and rejected it and ran away. They saw them as people who were once close to the covenant of God, but had since exchanged the truth for a lie. And so they hated them. They wouldn't associate with them. They were people who were on the fringes. And so for us to see in verse 5 that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and for there to be no qualification for that whatsoever is an incredible thing. Because people like Philip don't just go to Samaria. Just like people like you and me left to our own devices don't just go to our neighbor's house and share with them the gospel. Because that's weird. And they might get offended. They may not like what we have to say. But Philip was compelled by the spirit and the truth that he knew to walk in obedience. And so he went to Samaria. And in what would have been an unbelievable surprise to Philip and and any other Jews included with him in that dispersion, the Samaritans don't just hear the gospel and go, nice story, bro. Cool, let me think about it. Let Let me pray about it. Which is the Christian way of saying no. In a, in a really polite way. No, what do they do? It shows us here that the crowds with one accord pay attention to what is being said by Philip. And they heard him. And they saw the signs. And they saw what was happening. And there was joy in that city because they heard and responded to the truth of the gospel. And this is so important for us to see here because we now see with the acceptance of the gospel by the Samaritans that God is doing a new thing to save and create a people of God who are not identified by their nationality or their lineage or their previous faithfulness to keep his commands, but by their willingness to see the brokenness in their lives and the consequence of their sin and fall upon Jesus as their only hope. And it doesn't matter where you grew up or who, you, who, you, who your ancestors are. It doesn't matter if you live in Magnolia or if you live in Africa. That's a message you can respond to. There's hope in that. And so, so the, the people of, of Samaria with one accord listen to and obey and, and follow the, the message of Jesus And then in in verse 9, what we see throughout the course of the rest of this chapter is we see these two individual accounts that we're going to zoom in on of how this going out and declaring the gospel affects these two specific individuals. Most of the time here in Acts, we've seen mass conversion, but now we're going to focus on these two men, Simon and an Ethiopian eunuch. And what I hope we'll see from that is how we then should respond to the same proclamation of the gospel that we hear as well. So let's pick up in verse 9 and read the first account of one of these men. So it says in verse 9 there, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. 
And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd been amazed, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So what we see here is that as Philip is preaching in Samaria, he encounters this man named Simon, who's a practitioner of magic. He's developed such a reputation for what he's able to do that the people say, you are the great power of God. What you are doing is supernatural, Simon. Such a reputation he's developed and such a great following he's developed. This was probably his source of income as well. So when people begin turning to Christ and seeing the signs and wonders being done at the hands of Philip, Simon follows suit. Follows too, and it says that he's believed and, and, and is baptized. Now look back at verse 13 with me. It also says this, while the people of Samaria were amazed with Simon, what was Simon amazed with? You would hope you would see here that Simon was amazed with Christ. But it says Simon was amazed seeing the signs and the great miracles performed. At first glance, this might seem like nothing, But we have to remember that Jesus often had people follow him because of the signs that he did. And he would warn them, saying, you're looking for a sign, but there's no sign that's going to be given other than the the sign of Jonah in in Matthew 12. Or when he feeds the the 5,000, they follow him the next day and he goes, y'all aren't following me because of who I am or what I've done. You followed me because you're hungry again and you need more bread. Be careful that you don't mistake the evidences of God for God himself. And so, what we need to see here with Simon is is whether or not he was truly following Jesus because of Jesus or because of something else. And we see the answer for that in verses 14 through 25. So let's read there, and it says, Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came and prayed for them that they may receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and, when, and then they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered and said, Sure, I love God. Let me pray to him. No, it says, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. And when they testified and had spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans. So just a a side note here before we we jump into Simon. The gospel is preached and the apostles come down and they hadn't been given the Holy Spirit yet, which doesn't make sense to us because, right, like you, you trust in Jesus and you're given the Holy Spirit. But what's happening here is something unique in the book of Acts that, that we won't be able to get into more detail on. But throughout the course of the book of Acts, we're going to see that people will trust in Christ, but there will be a 
time that's, that is given to them where they receive the Holy Spirit separate from that belief. And that's always done so that there can be validation and visible evidence of what God is doing. Just like we saw in Acts chapter 2 with the, the tongues of fire and the speaking of languages with the giving of the Spirit. So I believe what's happening here is that God knew that if the apostles were the ones to come and validate that Christ had indeed saved the Samaritans, and, and if the apostles were the ones who got to have this miraculous validation of salvation by laying their hands upon the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit, there would be no doubt in anyone's mind about where the Samaritans fit inside the body of Christ. There would be no doubt about what Jesus felt concerning the Samaritans. There would be no doubt about whether or not God was doing a new thing to include in his people, people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And not only that, but for the Samaritans, it would give them assurance that they are no longer considered outsiders and outcasts and unwelcome from the people of God because they had been affirmed by the very people who walked with Jesus. And so this act would have been amazing to see, and clearly it was amazing to Simon because what we saw is that Simon is so amazed by the laying on of hands and the giving of the Spirit that he goes to the apostles and he says, hey, here's money. I want what you have. Let me have that. I want to be able to lay my hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, he had been called the great power of God, but all of a sudden he sees a power of God that he doesn't have, and he's not content to not have it. He's not content to not have in his repertoire the ability to do what he just saw take place. And Peter's rebuke shows us where Simon's heart is at. Simon had no part in what God was doing. His heart was not right before the Lord. He needed to repent of his wickedness. And instead of, of doing what you would hope you would see Simon do in that instance and own his sin and repent before the Lord, instead he looks at Peter and says, hey, you pray to God. I don't want the consequences that you just said. That's not a man who's invested in Jesus, who wants to own his fault before the Lord and find forgiveness. It's a man who wants the benefits of God without the person of God. So what do we learn here from Simon? What I want us to see from Simon this morning is that there's a way of believing in Jesus that involves being less concerned with who Jesus is and more with how he can benefit you. There's a way of believing in Jesus that is less concerned with who Jesus is and more concerned with how he can benefit you. Church, this hasn't changed over time. So many people today participate in the church and say they believe in Jesus because it makes them look a certain way to their family and friends or because it's the right thing to do. There's an inherent danger in, in participating in the church and believing in Jesus because you want your kids to grow up and be moral, or to be good kids, or because you think it's going to save your marriage, or because when you met your spouse, they were a believer, and they went to church, and they asked you to come with them, and you knew that in order for it to work, you would have to start participating as well. There's danger in going to church because you're afraid of what your parents or your friends would say if you told them, I don't really believe in this. I know it's the way I grew up, but I'm not really invested in this. And if that's true, then you're no better off than Simon this morning. You're using the church and a claim to faith in Christ because it means some kind of emotional safety or personal gain or avoidance of embarrassment or something else. 
And when push comes to shove and persecution happens like we saw here in Acts 8, or life blows up and falls apart, that's a faith that won't hold up. We don't follow Jesus because of how it can benefit us. We follow Jesus because he is the benefit. Everything else is lost compared to gaining him. Simon missed that. He wanted the stuff of God. He wanted the power of God, but he didn't want the person of God. And when he didn't get what he wanted, he stepped away. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. Want his blessings, his grace, his power, his forgiveness, his kindness, but never actually want him. Or love God as long as he's doing what we want. But then the moment we don't get what he wants, where he doesn't answer our prayers, where he fails us in some way, we step away. And if that's you today, I pray that you'll stop for a minute and ask yourself, what is your motivation for following Jesus? Is it to enjoy him and to know him? Or is it to satisfy a personal need? And if that's you this morning, I want you to know that there's no condemnation for you this morning. There's just a call, a call to hear the truth of Jesus and to respond in faith, to respond the way that we're going to see with the next man that we meet in verses 26 through 40. So let's see that here. Philip is still the focus here. It says now in verse 26 that now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Don't you wish every evangelism encounter you had was that easy? I mean, you just put it on a tee and knock it out of there, right? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Philip giggled because he realized this was going to be super easy. This is the easiest close in the whole wide world. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture in Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to see water and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus as he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip is instructed by an angel to go to this place south of Jerusalem, and he meets this highly important man in the kingdom of Ethiopia who's returning from worship. So clearly this man is familiar with God if he's going to Jerusalem a thousand miles away from the kingdom of Ethiopia to worship. He was probably a Gentile who'd converted to Jerusalem many years ago. And so while this is true, there's an important dynamic for us this morning that I don't want to miss. Um, 
there's going to be a, a picture of the, the temple here on this slide that I want to show you. For a Gentile to worship in Jerusalem would mean going to this temple and worshiping outside the temple building. So outside of the holy place, you can see that there's these courts. There's the holy place, and outside of that court, there's a court for the priests, and outside of that, there's a court for the Jewish men, and outside of that court, there was a court for the Jewish women. And then there's this wall that you see around the temple, which was to prevent unpure Jews or Gentiles from even coming close to the temple. And outside of that was the court for the Gentiles. It was that court that was often filled around Passover with people selling animals for sacrifice to the point that no one could come and worship. That's why Jesus overturned tables and said, you've turned my house into a den of robbers. This is supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations because the Gentiles couldn't even come into that court and worship God. And then, <clears throat> and then there's the fact that this man is a eunuch which according to Deuteronomy 23 means that he can't fully participate in the worship of God even as a Gentile. He can't offer sacrifices because he is perpetually and fully in his identity unclean and unable to come to God. So when this man goes to, to Jerusalem to worship and is returning, don't you imagine that what is in his mind as he's reading Isaiah is the fact that even in his best effort, on his best day, he is far from the presence of God and not welcome in his presence. He is, of all men on the fringes, one on the outside, one who's unclean, like the Samaritans. And he's going a thousand miles back home to be distant from the one hope that he could have. And so when Philip comes and finds this man reading Isaiah 53 in his chariot, he starts with this scripture, Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And from there, he proceeds to share the gospel. And if you read in Isaiah 52 through the end of the book, you will see the most incredible Old Testament declaration of the gospel. And we don't know what all Philip said to him there. But not too far from Isaiah 53, if he started with that scripture and moved forward, we come to Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. And I want you to read with me there what it says. It says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will, yet, I will gather yet to others, others to him besides those already gathered. Who do you think him refers to? How does the Lord God declare that he's going to gather to him those who are not yet already gathered? When you see the eunuch's response, 
where he says, hey, look, there's water over there. Let's get out of this chariot and go. I want to be identified with this Messiah. I want to be included with him. I want what he is offering me. I don't want to stop. I don't want to wait. With joy, let's run to the water and be baptized. Do you understand now, seeing here in Isaiah, how this man, who is an outcast, could have that kind of a response? This man, who for centuries has been a people who is outside the promises of God, excluded from worshiping him fully, sees in Jesus that the barriers and the walls are dropped and a welcome invitation to come is given. Not to be an accessory to the people of God, but to be himself included in the people of God. This man is not unlike Simon. This man had respect and power, and influence, and fame, and following. But when he was confronted with the gospel, he didn't see something that he could use for personal gain. He saw something that he would gladly lose all things for. This man knew what the greatest treasures in the world could look like because he was in charge of them. And in comparison to those treasures, he saw something far greater. He saw something that demanded a response of his life. And so he believed, and in believing, he found joy. What the eunuch shows us here this morning as we talk about responses is that there is a way of believing that considers everything a loss compared to gaining Christ. You know, when we heard from Neil and Sarah this morning, they shared with you that their work is in South Sudan and Kenya. According to the church father, Irenaeus, this eunuch went back home and he became one of the first Christian missionaries to Africa. And the kingdom of Ethiopia in Jesus' day was in Sudan. And so this man left and went to the same places where Neil and Sarah are walking. And he declared to them the same things that are being declared in Africa right now. That there's hope to be found in a Messiah who while you were dead in your sins and outcast from the people of God without choice or hope in this world can rescue you and give you the ability to experience life that you've never had before. You can choose to follow Jesus instead of the ways of this world. You can find hope in the one who's the rescuer who while you may have what you consider to be great is far greater who you can lose all things for. As the Muslims in Sudan understand, they will lose their homes. They will lose their families. They will lose perhaps their lives for the sake of the gospel, but have found a treasure that in trusting and in accepting that is far greater than anything that they could lose. So what does that mean for us today? shows us that though persecution befell the church here, the powerful, unstoppable movement of God that we talked about at the very beginning of this, this series continues on. Nothing can stop what God is doing. Not in Acts, not in Africa, not at C3. Nothing can stop what God is doing here because he's sovereign and he's Lord. Regardless of who stands on this stage, regardless of who sits in those chairs, this is his church, and it is his pleasure to use it to make much of him to people in our area who are outside of the family of God. Our call is to do what happened here 
and obey and go so that we might see people respond the way that we saw the eunuch respond. So that they would see that while they were outside of the people of God once, God is inviting them to draw near. This isn't just about what we do going out. It's for us as well. So this morning as we wrap things up, where do you stand in response to that today? What is your response? Are you Simon this morning? Have you heard the gospel, believed in it, done the actions necessary to convince people that you understand the gospel, but deep in your heart you know, I'm not really invested in this beyond what it can benefit me. Are you like the eunuch this morning? who sees your life and sees the hope that Jesus provides and says, if not for that, I have nothing. For some of you today, the response may be to realize that you are more like Simon than the eunuch. And this morning, Jesus would have you know that there's nothing that you've done, no amount of fake actions or or ritualistic motions that you've gone through that you should be embarrassed of or ashamed of because Jesus died to take away that shame and to draw you near to him. For some of you, the response may be to do what the disciples did and say, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines anymore. The Holy Spirit's at work in Acts, in Africa, and in my heart to go out and tell others about Christ. For some of you, it may be today just to do what the Samaritans did when they responded and experience joy because you're secure in your faith and you know what Christ has done for you.